Well, we have been in the book of Ephesians for the last, um, how many weeks now? Nine weeks now? Uh, missing one week in there when it froze and our pipes froze and all that. But we've been in Ephesians uh, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as, as best as we can. Uh, today, uh, I want to just, before we get into our text, I want to get in, I, I want to just give us a small review of where we've been uh, in this letter. Uh, and Paul, in, in the first three chapters, chapters one, two, and three, Paul steeps us deep into the grace of God and what God did to purchase us and also who we are in Christ Jesus. That's something Paul does not want the early church including us, the hearers who are hearing this now, to forget who we are in Christ Jesus. This leads to a life lived not out of begrudging obedience, but a life lived in obedience because of what God did for us. There is a difference between living a life in obedience because you, you just feel like you have to, and living a life out of obedience because you know what's been done for you and who you are in Christ Jesus. The will of God for the church of God is this. People who live in light of the grace that has been given for them. Being raised from death to life and not trying to climb back in the same grave they were resurrected from. That's a picture for us to, to, to think about in our heads that we are often, as Christians, trying to climb back into the same grave we have been resurrected from. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a little bit. So today we're going to cover the rest of chapter 4 and then also some of chapter 5. So it's going to be quite a bit for us to cover, so make sure you stay with me. Okay, let me give you this illustration very quickly as we're uh, introing these first or, or these uh, two chapters, four and five. So imagine with me a child and parent relationship, okay? One who is constantly strained because the child is continually walking in blatant disobedience because they're constantly having to be reminded who they are and whose they are. They often forget. Imagine with me for just a moment that you're leaving here, okay? And you're walking out with your kiddo and your kiddo tries to get in someone else's car. And you're like, hey bud, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I just forgot that you were my parents for just a moment. How would you feel as a parent if you were constantly having to remind, you're constantly having to go pick up your kid from someone else's house because they forgot where they lived? It sounds absurd. But that is often what we do in the Christian life is we go live in someone else's house. We go find other residences when we know that we belong to God. Turn really quickly, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. And I love the way Paul reminds the church here. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. Should be up on the screen for you. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that's, and daughters too. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come back or you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul ends that with a question. Why would you want to go back to that life when you know that you have freedom in Christ, which he gets to in chapter five in Galatians? You know that you are free in Christ and you continually want to go back to slavery. So let's look at chapter four, Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse. I believe we're in verse uh, 17 is where we're going to start. And mine has a little caption right above that. It says the new life. Starting in verse 17, it says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is Paul, Pauline language here that he's saying, I'm a witness before God. I'm saying this as God, as my witness, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way that you learn Christ. Paul tells the church here. Paul reminds the church that they have a new life and not to go back to what the Gentiles are doing. He's using them as an example. Look around you. The Gentiles are living life apart from Christ. But that is not how you learn Christ. That is not who you are in Christ. Look at verses 22 and 24. Ephesians chapter 4. 22 and 24. Look at this language that Paul uses. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Listen to, to how Paul uses that, that he, he's using this imagery for us that we take off the old nature and we put on the new nature. And this is something that Christ did in our place. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is what we call imputation. That Christ, who was perfect and sinless, took our sin. He made our sin His responsibility, put it on Himself, and He took off His righteousness and put it on us. This is called the doctrine this is a very important doctrine for the church to believe, the doctrine of justification, that we stand before God. If you are in Christ, you stand before God as you are Christ because we are wearing his coat of righteousness. So we take off the old self and we put on the new identity that we have in Christ. Paul then moves into some very specific imperatives. And I want you to pay attention to this. Look at verses 25 through 32. I'm not going to read all these for us, but I want you to see a few things here. Look at, look at, what, look at, the, at the language that Paul uses here. 25. 
I'm just going to pick a few things out here. Put away falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. And then he speaks to the thief. If you were, if you were a thief, don't steal anymore. But rather, do honest work with your own hands. Look at verse 29. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Look at me for just a moment. Paul's not just talking about cuss words. Paul is talking about edifying language that comes out of your mouth. When people are around you, do they feel edified? Or do they feel like you're constantly being critical? Let me just be honest with you for a moment. This is something that the Spirit has been doing something in my heart. I feel like I'm constantly critical. I look at things and I, well, I wouldn't do things that way. That's not how I would do it. How encouraging is that to other people? To, to be constantly critical and to be a pastor in that way? That is something I'm praying that the Spirit would kill in my life. Spirit, don't let that live in my heart and in my mind anymore. I don't want to be critical about what, other, what people are doing. But if I can come alongside them and help them see, maybe that's the way God can use me. Or maybe I can just listen and hear their side of you, their point of view. So let's think about these imperatives that Paul uses here in light of the Ten Commandments. Okay? In Exodus chapter 20, we see that God gives the law to the people of Israel. Okay? So as far as, the, first, as the, the Ten Commandments go, I want you to think about, think about them this way. Okay? The first four commandments. Okay? So number one, no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Number two, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Okay? And fourthly is to keep the Sabbath day holy. Okay, those are the first four. Okay, and then the last six are different. It's honor your father and mother. Do not murder. No adultery. No stealing. No false witness. No coveting is the sixth one. The first four correspond in our relationship to God. See that? The first four correspond in relationship to God. The last six of the Ten Commandments are in correlation to each other. So God says, this is how you treat me, the first four. The last six, he says, this is how you treat each other. Okay? So Paul, the language that he's using here in, these, in, these, in verses 25 through 32, he's using covenantal uh, ten commandments language here. That's what he's using here. Okay? He's saying... First, we need to honor God with our lives. We need to walk in our new identity, who we've been purchased to be. And then we need to walk lovingly with one another. We need to not harm one another. We need to not try to not sin against one another. But I'll be completely honest with you. In the planting of a new church, sinning against one another happens. I do not claim to be perfect as your pastor. But I want to be honest and humble before you and say, if I do sin against you, let me know so that I can ask you for forgiveness. I want to come to you and be humble enough to say, forgive me because I sinned against you. 
If you're a note taker, write this down. Okay, if you take notes, write this down. How we see God anchors us in how we see ourselves and how we see each other. Let me say that one more time. How we see God anchors us, gives us a firm foundation in how we see ourselves and how we see each other, good or bad. So if you continually have this this view of God that he's frustrated with you, that he really doesn't, he loves you, but he doesn't really like you that much. That's how you're going to see yourself and that's how you're going to see each other. And this is something, this is a tension that's constantly inside of me is growing up in a pastor's home is I just had this, this, I don't know what it was. And my dad never said anything to me about it or anything like that. But I just had this, this feeling that God loved me, but he didn't really like me that much. That I was constantly frustrating to him. When Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning that how he sees you if you are in Christ is how he sees his son. Perfect. Righteous. Without sin. So how we see God anchors us in how we see ourselves and how we see each other. Look at verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32. And this one is a good, this is a good verse for you to memorize. I've tried to get my kids to memorize it. They've done a pretty good job. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Pay attention to this. Paul knew that the church was going to sin against one another. And he, again, is reminding them, think about what Christ has done in your place. If Christ has forgiven you, though we, none of us deserved his forgiveness, he gave it to us freely, we should offer forgiveness to each other. Should we not? And the language that Paul uses here is be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And this word tenderhearted is, is, is make sure you're paying attention to their point of view too. Don't just assume things about the situation, but come humbly and, and listen intently to what they have to say. And maybe you'll understand their point of view for just a moment. And maybe there still needs to be forgiveness on both sides, but now you can understand and walk away as friends because remember church, our goal is unity. Our goal is unity. Not to be divided as one church, but to come together and say, we might disagree on a few things and we might have to seek forgiveness for a few things, but we're gonna come together and we're gonna fight for unity. Do you know how many churches, even churches I've been a part of that have split because they didn't like the color of carpet that the pastor chose? How infuriating is that? Look at our floor. I don't even know what color it is. It's like puke brown or something. Thankfully, you're not coming to me and saying we got to change this floor. Let us be united under the head who is Christ. Even when we can't see eye to eye, we're going to sit down and we're going to figure this out. 
We're going to figure this out. And these two words at the beginning of verse 32, be kind. Let me tell you this. The atheist, the person who doesn't believe in God, they can be kind. The agnostic, the person who just can't, they just can't wrap their mind around the fact that there is a God, they can be kind. The deist, the one who believes that God created everything and just kind of folded his arms and said, y'all do whatever you want to do. The deist, they can be kind. The unbeliever, the lost person, they can be kind. But Paul is saying, this is a different kind of kindness. This is the kindness that was extended to us in Christ Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he demonstrated his love for us. That while we were participating in rebellion, in sin to him, to the holy God, that he came and gave his life in our place. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, starting in verse 10. And this is about the church here. Romans 12, 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing what? Honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means we go over and above to love our brothers and sisters in Christ well. That when one of us gets sick, what do we do? We show up at their doorstep and say, hey, do I need to take the kids? Hey, I've got chicken noodle soup. Hey, I've got this. I I wanna help out in whatever way I can. Why? Because grace and mercy has been extended to us from Christ. So now we can be kind to one another and we can outdo one another in good works. Let that be known about Redeemer Borger is that those people, they go out of their way to serve one another. They go out of their way to love one another. They go out of their way to stay unified with one another. They go out of their way to truly serve each other and that community. Let that be said about Redeemer Borger. It's not a chapter five. Now, how do I walk in this new life that's been given to me? First, we were talking about this is the new life that you have. This is what's expected of you. And now we go to, now how do I actually walk in this new life? Remember, Paul uses this, this, this verbiage here that we're actually walking in new life. There's something happening here. That we're not just stagnant, we're not just cold. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. What's that first word there? Therefore. Remember, when you see a therefore, it's there for a reason. Okay? Therefore, be imitators of God. Remember what we just talked about. We have this new life that's been given to us in Christ. Now, be imitators of God as beloved children. Look at me. If you are in Christ, There is no out of Christ ever again. There is no apart from Christ ever again. When you've been purchased by Him, drawn to Him by His Spirit and saved by Him, you've repented of your sin and put those things away and you've professed the Lord Jesus Christ, 
There is no out of Him ever again. His grace for His people is infinite. We cannot outrun the grace of God. We cannot outsin the grace of God. Why would we want to even try to outsin the grace of God? So, as we look at these next few verses, this is where preachers lose congregations a lot of times. And I've often heard this from people who have come to gatherings over the years, not just this one, and they just can't do it. They don't feel like they can keep all the rules. And if I were to sit down and have a conversation with you, would, you, would, you, would that be something that we would talk about? Is that it feels like Christianity is just a, a list of rules, a, a list of do's and don'ts. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. God gave His people rules. That's important for us to know. We have to have rules. I have to have rules in my house. I tell my kids all this. I, I tell them this all the time. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say anything. If I didn't love you, I would just let you play in the street as you wish. But because I love you, I have boundaries. Because I love you, I have rules that you have to keep in my house. When I was younger, I remember... I was about uh, 13, 14 years old, and we were at uh, youth camp, at youth camp one summer. And I remember the evangelist was, he was an incredible speaker, preached the gospel, just very clear. And I remember after the service, we would go and we would play games and, you know, we'd, we'd hang out outside and we'd go get snow cones and stuff like that. But there was this group of girls who stayed back with the evangelist. And there, I remember coming back into the place where we met, we called it the tabernacle. I came back in because I forgot my Bible or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But I walked back in and he was sitting on the stage with these girls talking to them. And they were just crying. I mean, just crying. And he was sharing and he was facing them and he was talking to them and he was sharing things with them. And afterwards, I talked to this evangelist who was a friend of our family. I said, hey, man, do you mind if I ask what was going on there? And he said, yeah, they were under the conviction of sin but they didn't want to give up their lifestyle. They just felt like Christianity was a, a list of do's and don'ts. And they want Jesus, but they want to keep their old lifestyle too. They want to keep on the former self too. And this was a sad reality for me in that moment. That people, they want Jesus for a lot of the good things that He offers, but they want to keep living the life that they've always lived. This is a sad reality, even in America today, even in Borger, Texas today, that people want to come to Christ because He offers me something good, but I want to keep living the way I want to live and no one else can tell me how to live. That's the sin from Genesis chapter 3 is that we knew best. That we spit in the Creator's face. And said, no, we want our own way. Look at verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
That is the gospel. That Christ willingly laid down his life for rebels. That he lived a perfect life. The perfect life. That we could not live. That he died a substitutionary death in your place and in mine on that Roman cross. 2,000 years ago, hung on that cross and died a very real death. And after he died, was taken off that cross and buried in a tomb for three days where he defeated death after three days, just as he promised and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits now and he pleads for us day and night, interceding for his people. Then as we go down, Paul lists out some very specific sins here. I'm just going to do kind of an overview of these verses. Look, starting in in verse 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not be named among you. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Sexual, sexually immoral or, or impure. Again, he talks about covetousness. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Remember we talked about that in chapter 2. Sons of disobedience will still be punished by the judgment of God. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of what? Of light. Walk as children of light. And here, here's these list of, of do's and don'ts that Paul is laying out for us here. And again, he's telling us, you, you shouldn't want that stuff anymore. You shouldn't want crude talk coming out of your mouth anymore. You shouldn't want uh, sexually impure thoughts in your mind anymore. Those things should be crucified on that cross with our former selves. We should want to walk in a new life. Now, are, we, are all of us going to walk perfectly in this life? No. But this process that we are in called sanctification, we are being made more like Christ. And here's what I attribute it to, okay? In my own life, this is what I attribute it to. That I'm aware of my willingness to sin. And I can step back and say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to click on that. I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to criticize that. Because I know what my nature longs to do and is sin. But my new nature that I've been given in Christ is one to not sin. That is the will of God for His church. It's to no longer live in darkness, but walk as children of light. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in, it, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. We need forgiveness of our sin. So, we need to know as the people of God what is expected of us from God. Let, let me, most of you have been in, in some kind of relationship, whether it's friends or married or dating or whatever it is. Would things, and you can answer this out loud, would things be a lot easier if you could read that person's mind? Coach Rodewald's laughing back there because he's got a group of girls that <laughs> he wishes he could read their mind. But if you knew expectations, and this was, this was big for me. When I got married, we've been, Callie and I have been married for 17 years now. And if, not only if I could read her mind, but if I knew her expectations, and if she knew my expectations, things would be a lot easier. If you were just clear with your expectations, if you communicated those, you can't say that about God. God has been clear in His expectations of us. In his word. He has been clear. And you're like, Rick, I don't, Ricky, I, I don't see how you can say that because I don't even know where to start. That's why we offer classes for you to come to, to be equipped. So that you can know what God expects of you. God has been clear in his word. And here it is. As his people is to be made more like Christ Jesus. That's his expectation of you. Is to say no to sin and yes to him. That's his expectation of us. So as we end our time together, the reason we desire to be a gospel-centered church is this. If the gospel is not the engine of what drives Redeemer Border, other things will take its place. Rules, programs, uh, facilities, these things will take the place of the gospel. If the gospel does not drive Redeemer Borger, something else will take its place. And that is not the way the church was designed to function. The church was designed to function with the gospel in the middle, exalting Christ and saying, He is enough. We don't have to be here every night of the week. We don't have to have a men's Bible study all the time. We don't have to have a mom's craft night. We don't have to have all these things. Are those things fun and good? Yes, they are. But we don't have to have all those things because our lives are centered on the gospel. And our church is centered on the gospel. And we go out, the church scatters, and we leave from here, and we preach the gospel to our community. The father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was asked one day by one of his congregants as they were leaving their gathering, their Sunday morning gathering. They asked him, Mr. Luther, I don't know what they called him, Martin, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? And he took a moment and he looked at them and he said, because you forget it every Monday. That's why we need the gospel every Sunday. Not only every Sunday, but we need it every Monday. We need it every Tuesday, every day of the week. We need to be reminded who we are in Christ Jesus. 
I'll often say this, that the gospel is not just for the unbeliever, but it's for the person who's believed for 50 years. It is still good news for us today. It is still good news. So, I'm sure I can ask all of you this, but 2020 and even spilling into 2021 has been an interesting time in our lives. I mean, that, that goes without saying. It's been a time filled with anxiety, trouble, rebellion. You fill in the blank with whatever negative adjective you want to fill it in with. One thing that this, these couple of years have brought to light is how do true Christians respond? in the face of a pandemic, in the face of, of um, just the, the tension that we feel in our country, in the face of, of personal things that have been happening to you, how do true Christians respond? Do we respond trying to unify the body of Christ? Or do you see more posts on social media from Christians that it just outright divides. If the gospel is what drives us at Redeemer, we have nothing to fear as the days grow closer to the coming of Christ. We are held secure by our Creator in the palm of His hand, and He will not let us go. And He will see us through no matter the situation. So I want to end with this story. My dad was a pastor for many years. And I went off to college uh, about an hour and a half from here and uh, was working at a church as, as a youth, part-time youth associate person. And we were getting ready to go to camp and I was not good with money and took my friends to Wendy's all the time and had a hard time paying my rent because, you know, I had friends and I needed to entertain them. So I called my mom. Mom was always the one to go to, okay? So I called my mom and I'm like, Mom, we're fixing to go to, to camp and, you know, I'm obviously I'm expected to be a leader and I need to have my own money. Can I, can I get a couple hundred bucks? And she's like, she says the one thing that I hated to hear. Let me talk to your dad. So... The phone rings again after she hangs up and it's my dad. And we have this conversation and he's like, hey, you remember I told you like we sat down before you went to college and I showed you how to make a budget. And this is how much you give to the church. This is how much you save. This is for your rent. This is things like that. And man, this anger just, I mean, he was, I was just furious with my dad that he was telling me that. He didn't tell me no to the money. He didn't say anything else other than, hey, you remember I showed you how to budget your money? And I said some things that I still regret to this day to my dad on the phone, and I hung up on him. I said, I'll figure out a way. I'll figure out a way. I, I can find a way to get money. We were leaving the next day for camp. A couple hours later, I hear a knock on my door. And I look out, and it's my dad. And my dad says, hey, can, we, can your mom and I take you to dinner? So they take me in Amarillo. I was in Canyon. They take me in Amarillo and they take me to dinner. They don't say anything about the conversation. They don't say anything about how rude I was to my dad. 
They just ask me questions about how school's going and things like that. They take me back to my apartment. My dad walks me up to the door and he takes out two crisp $200 bills and he hands them to me and says, I love you. Have a great time. Turns around, gets in the car and leaves. Never says a word about how I treated him on the phone. Days go by, weeks go by, years go by. My dad never said a word about what I said to him on the phone that day. He gave willingly. And here's what it created in me, is not, continue, not to continually talk to my dad that way, but I wanted to follow his lead. Is that my dad could have gave me rules and, and do's and don'ts in that moment, but instead he gave me grace. He said, here's money. I know what I deserve. I know I deserve for you to come back home and work this off and for you to apologize to me and all these things. But he never said anything about that. And here's what I knew in that moment about my dad is that he would never cast me out as his son. No matter how ugly I talked to him, no matter what I said to him in that moment, no matter how terrible it was, he would never cast me out as his son. I wanted to follow his lead after that. I wanted to know that I could show my kids grace, my spouse grace, my church grace, my friends grace. So let me re-gospel you for just a moment. That's why you came, is to hear the gospel. Is that you and I could never live a good enough life for God. That God demanded from us holiness, purity, perfect life. And because we could not produce that on our own, He sent His one and only Son to live a perfect life, die a death that you and I deserve to die, and defeated death so that we could have a way to the Father, the way to the Father. That's the good news of the Gospel. Let let. I want you to walk out with that ringing in your ears who you are in Christ Jesus is that you will never be separated from Him. I want to end with this. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 26. Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible passage to end our time on. There is no separating us from Him. When we are in Christ Jesus, we are in Him forever and we walk out that identity for the rest of our lives. Let's pray.